he will tell many stories. There are so many to tell. But one story, one series of events expertly orchestrated to accomplish Yahweh's will and demonstrate his heart, this one will find itself on his lips more than any other. It's a story about identity and freedom that clings to your clothes like incense, a story that smells of sweat and mud, bitter herbs and roasting lamb and seawater. It's a story that sounds like moaning turned to music, a story dark with shadow and bright with blinding light, a story that tastes like unleavened bread, like manna and water from a rock. Some say it's the best place to meet Yahweh, to breathe deeply and watch and listen and discover not just who God is, but who you are as well. I'm Justin Gerhard. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. Screams echo through the streets, breaking the spell of the evening's silence. A sweating woman winces, grabs her midwife's hand, pushes again. The pain is immense and familiar. She's felt it twice before. It radiates from her middle, down through her legs, up into her neck. Uterus, stomach, thighs, toes, and fists, every part of her contracts, responding to the need of her struggling son. He cannot remain where he is. She must deliver him. More screams, muffled though. She mustn't be too loud. More pushing, more resistance. Amram fights back the fear as his wife's cries explode from the next room as he listens to her straining atop the birthing stool, tiptoeing on the edge of death. Finally, the baby crowns. A mottled, crimson orb passes through fluid-lined walls, darkness to light. The midwife places a cylinder of wood between the woman's teeth. Jacobed clenches her jaw, sucks air past the stick, pushes once more, grunting, growling, pleading. And then, breath. An infant's cry, the reflex response to the initial discomfort of a new home. Proof of life. The midwife smiles. Amram sighs, relieved. Jacobet weeps joyful tears. And Moses is born. He's not named Moses, though. Not yet. Jochebed and Amram are Levites, both of them descended from a man named Levi, who was the third son of Israel, who was the second son of Isaac, who was the second son of Abraham. Like all descendants of Israel, they live in Egypt. But Egypt is not their home. 
how this land came to be their dwelling place, that has something to do with Levi and everything to do with Levi's brother, Israel's eleventh son, Joseph. Joseph was Israel's favorite child. Jealous of the affection their father lavished on him, Joseph's older brothers concocted a plan. First, they trapped Joseph in a pit like an animal. But while they deliberated as to his fate, traitors happened upon the pit, snatched Joseph away, and sold him as a slave to another band of traitors. In time, though, and under the divine hand of fate, Joseph found himself on the banks of the Nile, commanding a kingdom as Pharaoh's second in command, a reversal only Yahweh could author. But Yahweh, God of heaven and earth, author of life and life stories, was not done writing. In a series of reversals, those jealous brothers eventually found themselves rescued by the one they'd endangered, fed during a time of famine by the one they'd intended to kill, adopted by the one they'd disowned. Reuben, Dan, Asher, Judah, Issachar, Levi, Gad, Simeon, Zebulun, Naphtali, and Benjamin came to Egypt at Joseph's invitation to escape the drought in their homeland. An aged Israel, too. Skin folded like parchment, eyes tired from weeping sad and happy tears. Israel travels to Egypt as well, and the elderly, fragile father is given a home by his loving, powerful son. Things are good in Egypt. Jacob's sons and their wives have children. Those children have children, so many of them. Babies clutched and clustered in Hebrew homes like fish spawn, the expanding clan flourishing in the shade of Joseph's power, and when he dies, his legacy. The Hebrews settle in Goshen, a fabulously fertile area within the Nile River Delta with no less than 100 feet of topsoil. They farm it for the king, happily moving around to dodge the seasonal floods. They are nomads at heart. The king pays them well for their trouble, a healthy wage, a 10-day work week with two- to three-day weekends, three-room apartments in the less flood-prone areas of Goshen, fresh water, food. It is a comfortable, middle-class life at a time when comfortable, middle-class lives are extremely hard to come by. But change follows at times heels like a restless hound, digging up what is, scratching new soil to the surface. Eventually, the echoes of Joseph's memory inside the palace walls fall silent, and a pharaoh arises who acts as though he remembers nothing of Joseph's contribution to Egypt's success. Joseph's extended family, on the other hand, the Hebrews, cannot be forgotten. Their exponential multiplication these last several generations has made them an unignorable presence in Egypt. Their vast numbers, coupled with their failure to fully assimilate, makes them a threat in this pharaoh's mind. If they were to grab for power, it would be no small problem. So what to do? There's always genocide, but that seems a waste of a resource. Perhaps it's time to fully leverage that resource. Think of what all those people could accomplish if instead of eight-hour-a-day employees, they were 12-hour-a-day slaves. That, that's how you build an empire.
Pharaoh has sent for you. Shifra and Pua look at each other, surely with shocked, nervous eyes. Pharaoh? Why would he send for us? The two Hebrew midwives quickly pack a few things for the journey and set out for the palace. Horses wait outside, perhaps, saddled and ready. They move through Goshen, its verdant fields stretching out before, beside, and behind them. Emmer wheat, barley, sorghum, lentils, chickpeas, fava beans, onions, garlic, radishes, lettuce, parsley, olive groves, sprawling vineyards, watermelon vines, carob and pomegranate trees, apple orchards. Once, Shifra's people cultivated this land as partners of the empire. Now they work these fields and create Pharaoh's cities as slaves. The streets and temples, terraced slopes and promenades, columns and colossi of Python and Ramses, it's all been built on the broken backs of Joseph's descendants, the living, breathing property of Pharaoh. A renewable resource, thanks to the Hebrews' uncanny fertility. No one knows that better than Shifra and Pua. Surely this summons has something to do with their work as midwives. A commendation, perhaps? They've presided over quite a season. Birth rates are incredibly high. Infant mortality is incredibly low. Would they accept thanks for providing their oppressor with a constant supply of bond servants? If the two midwives puzzle over this ethical quandary, they soon find they've chosen the wrong dilemma. Pua and Shifra enter the throne room. Pua's small frame dwarfed by the massive columns, Shifra's beauty reflected in the golden panels lining the walls. Pharaoh, his striped headdress flaring like a cobra's hood, wastes no time. When you are helping the Hebrew woman during childbirth, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. If the dictate wasn't so shocking, the women would have heard an undercurrent of fear in Pharaoh's voice. Shifra trembles. Puat does everything she can not to exchange a horrified glance with her friend. That is all. The ride home is emotional. But by the time they get home, the two midwives have their minds made up. They will ignore Pharaoh's murderous command, come what may. The ruler of Egypt is fearsome, but God would not want this. More screams, more joyful tears, more Hebrew babies, daughters, and sons. Because of their role in the community, Pua and Shifra cannot have children themselves. Or perhaps because Pua and Shifra cannot have children themselves, they have taken on this role in the community. Either way, every birth is a vicarious thrill. Every tiny boy and girl they deliver, they cradle for themselves for just a moment before resting the child on its mother's breast. And they cradle so many, baby after baby, miracle after miracle, act of disobedience after act of disobedience. Why have you done this? Pharaoh is irate. He stares down Shifra, then Pua, rage, and is that fright glinting in his eyes? Why have you let the boys live? So he knows the secrecy of their subversion was 
only going to last so long. But the pair has had the whole ride over to think. Hebrew women, one of them says, as if it's an explanation. But before Pharaoh can demand elaboration, the other continues, they're not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. How exactly the king of Egypt reacts to this will be lost to history. But Yahweh smiles at the midwives' cheekiness and rewards their life-saving acts of insubordination. After all, these women are the beginning of the resistance, and Yahweh wants to thank them. A couple of months pass. One morning, Shifra's husband sees his beautiful wife enter the room, a grin spread across her face. I'm pregnant, she tells him. Pua's husband, perhaps on the same day, hears the same words from his little wife. And what is it like when these two get to share their news with one another? Screams, joyful tears. But Pharaoh will not be bested. He sends word to the slave masters, all of Egypt, in fact. Every Hebrew boy that is born must be thrown into the Nile. Jacobed smiles at Amram, their newborn baby boy's cheek resting on his mother's chest. His older sister smiles at him, maternal energy pulsing in her already. His brother, four years old now, waits in the wings. Moses makes tiny sounds with his lips, fingers curled around his father's pinky finger. He's strong, Amram says, perhaps, grinning. And then, on both parents' faces, a shadow of grief. So many children in these last months since the edict, torn from their wailing mother's arms, stuffed into sacks weighted with rocks, their tiny bodies, even now, scattered across the floor of the Nile, trapped in the water. The baby nurses peacefully. Look at him, Jacobed says. That cannot happen to our son. Amram's face falls. What can they do? We will hide him. And so they do. In the coming days, weeks, months, sunlight rarely falls on their infant's face. His cries are stifled by Jacobed's ready breast. Questions are artfully dodged. Father and mother take shifts, keeping the baby inside as much as possible. Of course, they are slaves, and their schedules are inflexible. And so surely the tiny boy is wrapped creatively under loose-fitting clothing, shielded from view by careful posture and quick thinking. How they pull it off is a marvel. Miraculous, some would say. But after three months and those abundant meals, their baby boy is too big to be hidden any longer. The Nile beckons. Jacobed turns the basket over slowly in her hands. The papyrus fibers are woven tightly, but not tightly enough. 
Emram perhaps reaches into the hearth, flickering light casting shadows on the swollen ridges crisscrossing his arms. Scars from Egyptian whips. From above the fire, he draws a small clay pot and sets it before his wife, thick black liquid bubbling inside. Jacobed takes a brush, a slave's improvisation, donkey hair perhaps tied around the end of a stick. She dips her brush in the pitch and paints the papyrus black. Once the pitch has cooled, Jacobed reaches under her son's fragile body, one hand on his bottom, the other cradling his head. After a final feeding, she lifts him to her face, kisses his forehead, closes her eyes and inhales, cherishing his scent one last time. She places him in the basket and walks out the door, basket in hand. A moment later, a second figure darts out the door and follows, stealthily. It's dark, surely. Jacobed mustn't be seen, but dawn won't be long in coming. She's timed things to make sure of that. Jacobed makes her way to the river, the liquid graveyard of countless sons of Abraham, and follows the water to a very specific place. She moves down toward the bank, reeds standing straight, super abundant in the saturated soil. The baby, sleeping soundly perhaps, does not see his mother's tears. With one final kiss, Jacobed lays her child amidst the reeds. The basket bobs. He makes that sound with his tongue, sheltered in his tiny ark. Does she pray? Surely she prays. And then she turns, climbs up the bank, and walks away. Is this plan Jacobet's, or was it given to her? Regardless, it's no exaggeration to say what she's just done will change the world. The water of the Nile morphs, turning from black to gray to golden as dawn breaks, the sun illuminating the holy river and the adjacent palace of Pharaoh, the one who calls forth Amun-Ra, supreme god, to make his radiant journey across the sky. On the banks, a young woman stands while her attendants undress her and then wades into the water to bathe. The feathered residents of the Delta welcome the new day, white-breasted kingfishers, sand martins, pallid swifts, little green bee-eaters, and hoopoes sing morning songs, while quieter egrets, ibises, and spoonbills step slowly through the shallows. The young woman smiles, perhaps, remembering the stories of Ra Horkati, the bird god with the head of a black-winged kite, born of the partnership of Amun-Ra and Horus, Heaven and earth brought together as Ra's light shone on Horus's soil. She's heard these stories since before she can remember. Tales poured over her from the ever-full cup of her father, the one who mediates between the people and the gods, who staves off the chaos, bringing order and protection to the people and the land. Pharaoh himself. But suddenly her face changes. Her brow furrows and she stops moving to quiet the water. Is that 
Amidst the bird's song, there is the unmistakable sound of a baby's cry. She calls to her attendants. Nearby, spying eyes peer from behind cover. Lips curl into a relieved smile. Pharaoh's daughter directs a servant from her vantage point in the river, the servant moving among the sea of reeds on the riverbank, following the sound of the baby's cry. Finally, a glimpse of something dark, a black basket. She lifts the lid, a tiny, screaming baby. How long has it been here? How did the jackals not find it? And who would... The servant bends down and draws the baby from the water. By this time, Pharaoh's daughter is hastily drying off. Let me see it. Hello. She reaches under its fragile body, one hand on its bottom, the other cradling its head, maternal instincts pulsing within her. She lifts it, perhaps, to her face, kisses its forehead, closes her eyes and inhales, cherishing its scent. Oof, but that new baby smell isn't the only odor coming from this child. She lays the infant down and removes its swaddling clothes. A boy. But he's... different. She's heard of this, a practice of the slaves. Circumcision, they call it. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she says. Does she know about her father's order to kill the Hebrew children? Does she have any idea she bathes in a mass grave? The waters of the Nile might as well be blood. Look at him. He'll die if I leave him here. What can I do? I could keep him. But what would I feed him? Babies need milk, and I... Excuse me, your highness. A young voice appears out of nowhere. A slave girl. Where did she... Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Did she just happen to be nearby? Pharaoh's daughter, eyebrows raised in surprise, considers the offer. How... Serendipitous. The gods must be smiling on her. Yes, go. The girl's lips curl into a relieved smile. She runs back to the Hebrew settlement, back to her home, and tells her mother everything. Jacobet beams. Jacobet enters the palace, doing her best to quiet her screaming nerves. Hopefully she won't suspect. Take this baby and nurse him for me, Pharaoh's daughter says to her. As the princess places the child in Jacobet's arms, she adds, I will pay you. And with that, the woman leaves, holding her little boy, the coins rattling in her purse as she strides out of the palace. The next few years are precious. Time Jacobed and Amram never thought they'd have. Their son learns to crawl, to walk, to talk. He's slow to speak, but his big brother perhaps understands him and speaks up for him. The family does their best to fill him with the stories of their people before he must go to live with the Egyptians. Amram, Jacobed, even his sister Miriam and brother Aaron, they take turns telling their little brother about Abraham leaving Ur, about Jacob wrestling the angel, 
about Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, who created the world in six days. If the boy asks where Yahweh is now, his parents glance at one another with sad eyes. The answer seems complicated. Eventually, the time comes to give their boy over to his adoptive mother. He stands in the palace, columns rising skyward, hieroglyphs papering the walls in stylized lines and primary colors, colossal statues of Osiris, Hathor, and Toth. Pharaoh's daughter is pleased, no doubt, at the boy she sees before her. It seems this Hebrew woman has looked after him well, as if he were her own. Moses, the princess says, that is what I will call you, because I drew you out of the water. Does Moses hesitate as his Egyptian mother beckons? Does he cling to Jochebed, crying confused tears as he leaves his Hebrew family? If he does, it will not be the last time he's caught in the middle of these worlds. But Moses is exactly where Yahweh wants him, for now. The house is quieter without Moses in it. Jochebed tries not to think about it, but his place at the table, his little bed, his favorite toys stand as monuments to his absence, the fact that her son is gone. But that empty spot at dinner, the pallet of bedding on the floor beside Miriam and Aaron, the tiny papyrus boat moored by little hands in a hole in the wall, they stand also as monuments to Moses' existence. He is, and he almost wasn't, wouldn't have been, if Pharaoh's empire building had won out. But instead, Jochebed had a handful of priceless years with her waterborne son. She got to nurse him. She got to teach him to say mama. She got to show him how to pray and tell him stories about their people and their God. They didn't have the soil for long, but she and Amram planted as many seeds as they could, watered them as well as they could. Now, it's up to Yahweh. The air in that palace is heavy with the names of Egypt's gods. Will he remember the one she told him about? Will he remember the name of Yahweh, God of Jochebed and Amram? God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Pharaoh's pantheon has the benefit of form, Anubis with his wolf's head, the winged Horus, and strong-armed Ptah, Amun-Ra bedecked with his ram's horns. Yahweh, Yahweh is spirit, no body, no image. He is everywhere, cloud, fire, bushes even. You could miss him if you weren't looking. Hopefully her son will look. What a delight to know he'll have the chance. As the sun sets that night on the exhausted Hebrew slaves in Goshen, Jochebed weeps. Joyful tears.
A shovel strikes the sand, thousands of grains torn from one another by iron will. Again the shovel hits, a new pile of sand cast aside while particulate cascades into the fresh abyss as if the hole is trying to fill itself. Ten inches turns to twenty inches as sweat begins dappling the ground, breath heavy, hands trembling, heart throbbing with panic. Beside the widening wound in the earth, a corpse lies motionless, a man dead eyes staring in shock, sprawled limbs limp, his body kept warm now only by the beating sun. Shovels full of sand fly onto a growing pile in rhythm. Another, another, another. Finally, shaking fingers reach under the dead man's body, one hand under his knees, the other cradling his head. The murderer lifts, drops the body in the hole, closes his eyes, and inhales, acid tears now spilling down his cheeks. A 40-year-old Moses, son of Jacobed and Amram and Pharaoh's daughter, scrapes sand onto his victim's face, fills the hole, and staggers away. What has he done? Hey, Justin here. Thanks so much for listening to the season four premiere. Uh, this season is a departure for Holy Ghost Stories in that we're devoting all 10 episodes to a sequential telling of the Exodus with a completely original score by the incredible Kendall Ramsour. Uh, if you're new, welcome. We love stories around here and we love the God who's so very good at writing them. Now, if you'd like to see some fascinating discoveries from my season four research trip to Egypt, I published some fun behind the scenes info alongside every episode of Holy Ghost Stories in an email I send every couple of weeks. You'll also hear about Holy Ghost Stories live shows and other stuff I'm working on. It's called The Latest, and you can sign up at the link in the show notes or at holyghoststories.org. Uh, make sure you're following Holy Ghost Stories on Instagram as well. I just posted a batch of amazing finds from my trip to the National Museum of Egyptian civilizations in Cairo uh, over there on Instagram. You should check it out. Oh, and if you're listening to this on Monday, the 9th of January, the day the episode drops, you have until midnight tonight to enter to win a trip for two to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. This is real. I'm sending one of you guys and a friend to check out their incredible collection of Egyptian art. It's the perfect companion to this season of Holy Ghost Stories. And don't you think you could do with a weekend away? There are a couple of fun runner-up prizes as well. Head to Instagram, search Holy Ghost Stories, and check it out. Finally, a huge thanks to every single one of you who have contributed financially to make this season possible. I cannot believe the way you've come alongside me to enable this audacious project. Speaking of which, episode one has been brought to you by the generous contributions of Stephen and Lori Bridges, alongside our heroic patrons on Patreon, including the Tours: Rachel, Valerie, Travis, Steve, Shannon, Kara, Dawn, Catherine, Jean-Paul, Brenda, Tiffany, Sarah Beth, Stephanie, Vicenta, Cheyenne, Boo, Helen, Debbie, Scott and Susan, Derek, Maddie, Eric, John, Ricky, Mark, Kimmy, Stephen, Patrick, Liz, Stevens, Terry, Nelwyn, Julie, Aaron, Jamie, Stephen, Bill and Trina, Jessica, Ken, Alyssa, Sloan, and Jamie. You guys, well... 
we could not be doing this without you. So for me and everyone listening around the world, thanks. If you want to join these fine folks and be someone who helps make sure this podcast continues to exist, head to holyghoststories.org and click give. Holy Ghost Stories is a production of Hazefire Studios. Our composer is Kendall Ramsour. Our sound engineer is Joel Dolly. Manuscript editing by J.L. Gerhardt. Research, writing, narration, and direction by me, Justin Gerhardt. Till next time.